I'm Kevin Christopher Robles. Welcome to a Retrospect special feature. On this Halloween, Ariston Papeo tells his two ghost stories set right here at Fordham University. This is Retrospect, the official podcast of the Fordham Observer. Joining me now is Ariston Papeo. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Ariston, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, my name is Ariston Papeo. I'm a Joseph, if you want to know my legal name, senior at Fordham College Rose Hill, double major in philosophy and history, pre-law track, just finished the LSAT. I'm now applying to law schools at time of this recording. Please help me. I'm a retreat leader. I'm a LGBT plus peer minister. I'm a student activist. I am a writer. I've written for the Ampersand before. I got one of my poems published. Yeah, I think that covers not everything, but enough. (laughs) So talk to me about why I brought you here today. You brought me here because you went on a retreat with me, and I have a tradition on every retreat, which is on the second night, I will take everyone to a really dark place in Goshen, and I will get a candle, and I will tell ghost stories. And this past retreat, apparently I did a bang-up job, because now I'm British, and you asked me if I could come here and do this podcast. So, Ariston, what stories do you have for us today? Today I have two ghost stories, Fordham-centric, Rose Hill specifically. Um, I have a lot more if you want to hear them come on a retreat, going to plug that. But these ones are two of my favorite Fordham ghost stories because they involve two places that I've been and seen. So everyone at Fordham knows the Fordham Triad, that three traditional things you have to do before you graduate. Ride the Ram, go on top of Freeman, and then explore Keating Tunnels. Now, Keating Tunnels are a system of tunnels that were built between Finley Residence Hall and Keating Hall back when Finley was a medical school and not a dorm. They were used as a way of preventing students from having to see cadavers and corpses, which the medical students would use for anatomy lessons, dissections, practice autopsies, etc. It was also useful because in winter, when the tunnels would be very cold and students would leave for winter break, you could store bodies down there because the cold would act as natural refrigeration and prevent the corpses from decomposing. Now, when the medical school closed and Finley became a residence hall, Fordham, of course, closed down the tunnels and ran a system of pipes through them that connect water and heat, etc., and locked them up so students wouldn't be allowed to go in them because they considered it dangerous. But, as with all urban legends, more and more students found out about this and more and more students every year would try and go into the tunnels. And in the early 2000s, there was this one student He had come to Fordham and he had heard about the Fordham Triad on his orientation, during orientation, and had decided that he was going to complete all of them by the end of senior year. But junior year came and went, and whether it was because of friends or schoolwork or just the fact that he didn't know where the doors were into these tunnels, he never got to go in them. And as his senior year first semester came to an end and he was studying for finals, he was thinking about this a lot, and he was wondering how he'd be able to find them, and he used to spend inordinate amounts of hours just hanging out in Keating Basement, hoping maybe he'd see a facilities worker go in and come out, or looking for these doors. And it was at this time in December, middle of final season, he's chilling out alone, it's really late at night in Keating Basement, and he sees this old man walking through the hallways. 
And as he rounds the corner and comes into like that open space, he sees that the man is wearing a Fordham facilities uniform, but it's not like any of the ones that the workers wear that he sees. It's old, it's like different design, different font, and it looks really worn out. Like it's just been in constant use for decades. And he sees the man and he gives him a polite nod and then he goes back to studying and then he feels his hair on the back of his neck stand up. And he looks up and the man's standing right there next to him. And he smiles and the man says hello and they start talking. And he mentions that he's there not only to study but because he really wants to find these tunnels. And the man gives him like a quiz, an inquisitive look and smiles slightly and walks over to these large beige steel doors. And he takes out a ring of keys and he unlocks the locks on the doors and he turns the handle and he pulls it open and he looks at him and he goes, these are them if you want to try it. And he gets really excited and he like packs up his book bag and he grabs all his books and he goes and he starts and he looks at the man and he goes, can I get out on the other end? And the man goes, yeah, yeah, there's a door in Finley that will open from the inside. And he nods and he goes in and the man shuts the door behind him. And black, pitch black. No lights, nothing. You can barely see five feet in front of him. And he starts walking, feeling along the walls as he moves, touching the pipes that are cool, making sure that he's not gonna run into anything in front of him as he stretches out his hand. And that's when he notices there's a faint tapping against the floor as he walks, following him. Every time he steps, it's there. Whenever he pauses, it stops. And again, the hairs on the back of his neck are standing up. And he keeps going faster and faster, and then he hears it tapping on the pipes, almost as if someone's banging on them, letting him know that they're behind him. And he freaks out, and he starts to go faster and faster, not even paying attention to the direction of the walls as he's practically running through the black towards the other end. And the tapping gets louder, and the footsteps that are following him get closer and more frantic. And finally, he reaches the end. See, he was supposed to go on a vacation that year. He had planned it all with his friends, that he was going to be going away to Aruba. He wasn't going home, his family had been informed. But his winter break ended, and all his friends came back to uh, Fordham, they waited. They waited for him to show up. One week went by, then two. Professors started to notice. Deans made inquiries. And finally, the school called his family. And his family was shocked. They thought he'd gone to Aruba and straight back to school for winter break. And when they contacted his friends, his friends thought that he'd gone home and skipped out on their winter break plans. It wasn't until the summer when the tunnels really begin to thaw from the cold of winter and it gets warmer and facilities goes in to make sure no animals had gotten in and that all the pipes are still intact that they found out what happened see facilities went in through Keating and they walked down those black hallways shining their flashlights checking the pipes and when they got to the other end they noticed that the door to Finley was broken there were dents in random spots and claw marks grating down the entire length of the door like someone was trying to scratch their way out to freedom. And it was then that when one of the facilities workers moved towards the door to open it that he felt his foot kick something. And as he shone his flashlight down, 
He saw that kid's face, trapped in its final screams for help and freedom. No one knows who the man was that let that kid into the tunnels. But they say that at night in Finley in December, you can hear a faint tapping against the door that leads to the tunnels. And that if you listen very closely, you'll hear that kid beckoning you to come in and follow him deeper into the black. So this second story is a little more fun for me because it involves the residence hall that I was in when I was a freshman, and it also involves my current job. So if you don't know, RAs have to come back uh, a little early every year. They come back around two, three weeks before orientation so they can go through training for the year, and that way all the new RAs and the old RAs can be brought back up to speed to the residence-like policies and how to run a res hall and be an RA, et cetera. It's very complex and very annoying. But in 1999, there were these two RAs in Queens Court, which, if you don't know, is one of the older residence halls on campus. It used to be a home for Jesuit scholastics, and it's one of the original buildings at Fordham. And these two RAs were in the middle of training, and one of them was on uh, was the RA for Roberts III. And he had just finished checking all the rooms, and it was his second night back and he made sure they were all correct, the right number of furniture, etc. And then he noticed that a room at the end of the hall's door was open when he had closed it. And so he went over and he checked in again and he saw that the room was a complete mess. Mattresses were against the wall, beds were flipped over, the desks were on their side, and chairs were stacked against the closets. And he figured it was his first year as an RA and one of his friends who was an RA in John's might have been playing a prank on him. And so he fixed up the room and he cursed silently under his breath and he went to bed. The next day he got up and he went to training and when he came back late at night to finish doing his door decks and the bulletin boards, he saw that the room was open again. And he went in and he saw that the room was a mess again. Mattresses against the wall, beds flipped over, desks flipped, turned on their side, chairs stacked against the closets. And at this point, he was annoyed, and he was frustrated, and he fixed the room up, and he went over to John's, and he knocked on his friend's door, and he was like, listen, like, I need to sleep. We're both going through training. Like, this isn't cool. We have to get up early every morning. I don't want to keep fixing this room because you want to pull a prank on me. And his friend was like, dude, what? No, like, that's not me. And they got into a little argument, and they both went their separate ways. Then he went to bed, and he went to training, and then the next day, he comes back. It's late at night and he sees the room is open. And at this point, he's pissed. And he marches over to John's and he starts screaming at his friend. And they get into a huge fight and finally his friend goes, look, you know what? I'll help you fix this room tonight. And we're gonna stay outside of it and we're gonna wait to see who comes and who messes up the room. That way, I, you know it's not me. And if no one comes, I'll take the blame and every time it's messed up, I'll fix it. And so they go and they fix up the room and then they close the door and they lock it. And they sit down in the middle of the hallway and they just wait. Hours go by, they're playing cards, they're talking about life. 11 p.m. turns to 12 a.m., 12 a.m. to 1, 1 to 2. And right as it's about to hit 3 a.m., his friend finally stands up and goes, you know what, screw it. You're right, fine, whatever, I did it, I guess. And they both get up and they start to move down the hall. 
And it's right when they turn their backs that they hear it. The lock clicking in the door. The handle turning as the door slowly swings open. And the light in front of that room starts to flicker. And then right as something moves out and slams the door shut, the light turns off. A black, smoky mass just staring at them from the end of the hallway that's now dark. And they realize that the lights in Queen's Court are old. The circuits are all connected. It's one switch. So you can't turn off one light without turning off all the others. And that's when the next light starts to flicker and go off. And they feel the presence move closer. And they step back. And then the next light starts to flicker and go off. And then the next light. As they're frozen with fear, they realize that there's only one light left between them and the black of the hallway as this presence moves closer and presses in on them. And that's when it starts to flicker. Jolted from their fear, driven panic, they both turn and run down the hallway as suddenly all the lights are flickering. And just as they enter into the RA's room and slam the door shut, all the lights go off and something slams against the door, pressing, breathing against it. As they push the desk to keep the door from opening and lock it, they can hear in the hallway, scratching, clawing, and banging at the door, silently demanding to be let in to find them. And so they're terrified, backed up against the corner, screaming their heads off as this thing stays out there all night, periodically banging on the walls and on the door, trying to break in. And as night passes into day and dawn breaks, until right around 6 a.m., there's a light tap on the door. And they both stand there, frozen in fear, and they don't answer it. And then it comes again, a little more forceful, but gentle on the door. And then again, as they don't answer. And finally, after the fourth knock, the RA, whose room it is, goes, moves the desk, unlocks the door, and cracks it open a little bit. And in front of him, he sees a small priest with a balding head, wearing an older-style cassock. And the priest looks up at him and smiles behind his glasses and goes, you're the RA for this floor, right? And the boy nods and he goes, yes. And the priest says, well, I heard you were having trouble with the room at the end of the hallway. Don't worry, I've taken care of it. And he looks back at his friend who's still in the corner and then he looks over again and the priest is gone. And he closes the door and he looks at his friend and for a minute they just stand there before they go out and they go into the room at the end of the hallway and they see it's perfectly fine. Beds are where they're supposed to be, mattresses on the beds, desks all normal, chairs where they need to be. They look at each other, they close the door, they lock, they lock it and then they leave. Go to training, they don't tell anyone what they've seen. And they come back at night and they check and it's the same, everything's in order. And for the next two weeks, that RA kept his eye on that room. And his freshmen moved in and people moved into the room. And as September goes by, he made sure to always keep a special eye on that room. If the residents had any complaints, if anything strange was going on, nothing. So finally one day he walks over to Bishop Second and knocks on Father Katerski's door, who is the resident master for Queen's Court. And he asks him and he goes, Father K, I just wanna know who this priest was, and he describes the priest, because he helped me and my friend and I wanted to thank him. 
And Father K looks at him a little funny and he invites him into his room and he goes over to his bookshelf and he takes out this large photo album and that's labeled with the cross and symbols of the Jesuits. And he opens it and he starts flipping through pages and he holds up the book and he goes, is this the priest? And the kid smiles and goes, yeah, that's him, that's him. And there he is, plain as day, black and white photo, glasses and everything, same smile, same cassock. And then Father K says, read further. Father John Ryan, 1909 to 1970. See, there's a reason Fordham was the place where they filmed The Exorcist, and there's a reason the Jesuits are often called the uh, Company of Jesus. It's because not every Jesuit is a simple teacher, not every Jesuit a simple priest, and some of them, a few among them, wage war against things unseen. This has been Retrospect. Thank you for listening to our Halloween special. Our regularly scheduled programming will resume next week. We'll see you next time.